0: Have you ever wondered who gets the last word in a situation you are facing? Or maybe even in life in general? Well, John Redmond answers that question in today's message. God always gets the last word.
1: You may be facing something today in your life and you think, man... I'm going through a difficult time and I feel like Satan has got things going against me and, and my circumstances are against me and people are against me and, and the devil is certainly against me and, and maybe your health seems to have turned against you and everything is against you. Remember this, friend, where man rules, God overrules. Where circumstances seem to rule, God overrules, where the devil rules, God overrules, and that's why the Bible says in Isaiah 54:17 that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. You see, Satan, he didn't know it when he entered Judas and put this plan in Judas's mind to have Jesus arrested and crucified, but Satan was actually a tool in the hands of God. God used the devil to accomplish his own purpose and his own will. I think about Job in the Old Testament. The Bible says Job was a good man. He was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. The Bible says Job feared God and departed from evil. Job loved God with all of his heart heart. And yet one day God and the devil got in the conversation and God said to the devil, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil said back to God, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said. He said, God, the only reason that Job loves you, the only reason that Job is faithful to you, is because look at all the blessings you've given him. Everything in his life is smooth sailing. Everything's great. Who wouldn't serve you with blessings like that? He just serves you because how good you've been to him. And God basically said to Satan, you don't know Job like I know Job. Job doesn't love me because I've been good to him. Job just loves me because he loves me. And God gave the devil permission to bring all kinds of trouble into Job's life. He took his health, he took his finances, he took all ten of his children were killed on the same day. And not only that, then Job's friends came along and said, Job, it must be because of some sin in your life that things have gone and turned against you like this. Job was in a terrible place in his life. And as you read that story, it just looks like Satan is in control. But Satan never was in control. Satan was only doing what God allowed him to do. And Satan was a tool in the hand of God. Job was going through a test. He didn't see it. He didn't have the book of Job to understand what was happening. But in fact, he was going through a test. And at the very end of the book of Job, in the last chapter, chapter 42, it says the end of Job's life was better than his beginning. He received twice as many much property Twice as many animals, his wife had 10 more kids, and so his life was better at the end even than it had been at the very beginning. And in the New Testament, when the New Te- one of the New Testament writers is commenting on Job's situation, here's what he says, something very interesting. He says, consider, talking about Job, the end intended by the Lord. You see, as Job was going through all that calamity, God was in heaven. God was watching that, and God had a goal in mind. God had a purpose in mind. What was the purpose? The purpose was to strengthen Job's faith. The purpose was to prove that Job was a true child of God and that he would stay faithful to God no matter what happened. And the Bible talks about the end intended by the Lord. Listen today. Whatever you're going through in your life, whatever has turned against you in your life, God has allowed it. And there is a good end that is intended by the Lord if you will just stay faithful to Him. So the first thing I would say today is that God gets the last word on satanic plots and schemes. Now the second thought as we're thinking about God always getting the last word. God gets the last word on suffering and death on suffering and death, nobody ever suffered more intensely than Jesus Christ. Not only in those six hours on the cross, but the night before as he was arrested, as he was beaten, the morning before his crucifixion, his suffering was intense. And yet, even in the life of Jesus, we learn that suffering is temporary. Some of you are here today and you're suffering. Maybe for you it is physical pain. It is chronic pain. It is such pain that you could barely get out of bed and come to church today. Maybe some physical illness has come into your body and you are suffering. I want to remind you today, while that suffering is real and while that suffering is painful, that suffering is also temporary that suffering won't last forever. For others here today, your suffering is not physical. Your suffering is emotional. Maybe you're, stru- you're suffering today with loneliness, feelings of rejection, feelings of isolation, feelings like you just don't fit in. And so your suffering is not quite as obvious to others, but you're suffering nonetheless. The good news is today, your suffering is temporary. It's not going to last forever. Whatever we suffer in life, we have to remember it's temporary, and it won't always Be like it is now. Now, turn over into John chapter 20, because I want us to see, from John's perspective, the resurrection of Jesus. You see, suffering, what I want to say underneath this this point here, is that suffering is temporary, but death is a transition. Death really is a transition from this life to the life to come. And in John chapter 20, we read how John describes the resurrection, So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter. John is full of humility here as he tells us that he outran Peter to the tomb. He wants us to all know he's faster than Peter. And he got there first and and came to the tomb first. And verse 5, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief, that is the face cloth. In other words, Jesus had died, so they had wrapped his body with linen cloths, but around his face, they had put something like a napkin or a handkerchief, or called a face cloth, that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. Now, this is very interesting because you may never have thought about it, and I never really had till I was preparing this sermon, that the grave clothes of Jesus actually became a proof of his resurrection. Now, we read after Jesus died that two men came along and they wrapped his body in these grave clothes, and then they put his body in, in the grave. But after the resurrection was over, the Jews started a lie. We read about this in Matthew's gospel. And they said, if the word gets out that Jesus has risen from the dead, then everybody is going to believe that he truly is the Son of God. And so we've got to somehow convince the people that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so they said, let's tell everybody that his body has been stolen. That his disciples came during the night and stole his body. But see, these grave clothes in the tomb are a proof that nobody stole the body of Jesus. Use your brain. If somebody would have broken into that tomb and stolen the body of Jesus, do you truly think they would have taken time to have unwrapped his body? And why would they have wanted to have unwrapped his body anyway? To find the dried blood and the, the sweat that he had shed. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. And even if you say, well, maybe somebody would have wrapped his body, but, which they wouldn't have. But if somebody would have stolen his body and then they did unwrap it for whatever reason, do you really think anybody would have taken that face cloth, that napkin around his face and folded it. That's what it says, that they found the napkin folded over. Do you think anybody would have taken the time to do that? No. If somebody breaks into a house, they don't make the bed on the way out. <laughs> I mean, they're in there to get what they want, and they're going to get out. If somebody broke in the grave to take the body of Jesus, they're not on the way out. Say, let's take just a second. Now, let's fold everything up and make it real neat. No, Jesus did that. You know, it was a Jewish... It, I suppose it still is, but certainly in Bible times, a culture among the Jews that when they would finish a meal, the hostess bringing out all the food, and if you're just at the meal and you're getting to that place in the meal where you're saying, man, I'm full, I don't need to keep eating, my Stomach starting to, I can just tell I need to stop. Instead of saying to the hostess, man, I can't hold another bite, for fear that that would come across as rude to the hostess, what the Jews would do, they would take their napkin and they would fold it over, and they would put it on the table, and they would just kind of push it out like that. And when the hostess came back to the table and saw the folded napkin there, the hostess knew, okay, this person doesn't want any more food. You know, most of us today, probably after we have had as much food as we can eat, we'll just take our napkin and throw it in and say, I can't take any more, right? But the Jewish culture, they would fold it. And that was their way of saying, I'm done. I've eaten all I can eat. I can't eat anymore. Think about what Jesus did in that grave. When when his body levitated off that ground, off that stone slab where he had been lying, and those grave clothes just kind of fell to the bottom, and then he stood up and he went over to that part, that handkerchief, that napkin that had been around his face, and he folded that over. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying in a way that every Jew would have understood it. I have tasted death. I have experienced death, and I am done with death. I have conquered death, and I am folding this napkin is my way to say, I don't have anything else to do with death. And not only for Jesus, but for us too, because we put our faith in him, and we know that when our bodies die, we don't die. We go immediately to God to be with God in heaven. And you may listen and you say, yeah, John, but Jesus' body, was, it was raised from the dead. So does that mean after somebody dies, even a Christian, we go to the cemetery, we bury their body, do we have to wait for that person's body to come up out of that grave in order for that person to be alive again? No way indeed. Did you know even in Jesus' case, Jesus died on that cross, he said it is finished, and he died, and they took his body, and they put that body in the grave. Did you know that even while Jesus' body was in the grave, now this is a deep thought, Jesus Christ was very much alive. Do you remember his body was dead, but his spirit was alive? When Jesus was dying on that cross, one of those thieves, he was dying between two convicted thieves, and one of those thieves looked over at Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he was saying, Jesus, forgive me, save me, and take me to heaven one day. And in response to that prayer, Jesus said to that man, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say one day out yonder. He said today you will be with me in paradise. And so when that man died... His body would have been buried too, but that man's spirit went to heaven to be with God. When Jesus died, his body was placed in that ground, but when Jesus died, his spirit went immediately to heaven to be with God. And then after that, we read in another place in the Bible that Jesus went to the underworld. He went to a place below Hades called Tartarus where the fallen demons are, and there he proclaimed to them that he is indeed the Son of God. And that the plan that their leader, Satan, had devised against him had failed. And he had paid for the sins of the world. And he had conquered death, hell, and the grave. So you could say it this way. Jesus was very active while his body was dead. And what was true of Jesus is true of everybody who knows Jesus. That is, when a Christian dies, they may put our body in a grave. They may cremate our body. They may do whatever they want to do with our body, but our spirit and our soul goes immediately out of our body, and it goes to heaven to be with God. That's why the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? See, Jesus has taken the sting out of death. That's why in the 23rd Psalm, David. David could say in that fourth verse, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He described death as a valley of a shadow. See, Jesus took the full f- blow of death, but for us, when, it, when our time comes, we're not even going to walk through the darkness of the valley. It's just a shadow. It's, that's all it is. A shadow can't hurt you. Somebody has sh- said the shadow of a bee can't sting you. The shadow of a dog can't bite you, and for the Christian, the shadow of death cannot hurt you. When our bodies die, our spirits are emancipated and liberated, and we go immediately to be with God in heaven. And so what do we learn about the resurrection? We learn that God gets the last word on suffering and death. You still with me? Say amen. amen. Third thing, and that is God gets the last word on sinners who ask for mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. God gets the last word on sinners. That's you. That's me. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is a sin? We tell boys and girls, a sin is anything we do that makes God unhappy. Lying is a sin. Stealing is a sin. Disobeying your parents is a sin. Bad language is a sin. I mean, anything we do that makes God unhappy is a sin. And the Bible says the payment of sin is death. In fact, another place in the Bible, it says the soul that sins shall die. This is bad news. But the good news of Easter is that Jesus Christ has taken our sins and he's put them on himself and he has paid for our sins. He was buried and, of course, on Easter he rose again. And so what does this mean? It means all of us as sinful human beings, when we call out to God for mercy, for forgiveness and salvation, he always gets the last word and the last word is always yes. Now I got to thinking a few weeks ago, about, I was thinking about our Easter Sunday morning service, and, and I was, I, I got thinking about presidential pardons and how a president has the power, if somebody has committed a federal crime, to pardon that person if he so chooses. And so I started reading about and trying to study how, how, part, how the pardon process works and, and how that goes. And, you know, in a typical presidency, how many people request a pardon? And then how many people are actually granted a pardon? Let's just go back to the days when Jimmy Carter was the president back in the 1970s. And I was interested to learn that during his presidency, 2,627 people requested a presidential pardon. And he pardoned, of that number, 534 people. That's roughly 20%. When President Reagan came to office, now he was in office for eight years, he had 3,404 requests for a pardon, and he extended 393 pardons. That's roughly 11.5%. When President Bush 41, Senior Bush, was president and had a four-year presidency, he received 1,466 requests for a pardon, and he pardoned 74 people. That's roughly 5%. When President Clinton was in office, he received 7,489 requests for a pardon. He pardoned 396, just over 5%. When President George W. Bush, Bush 43, was president, he received 11,074 requests for a pardon. He only pardoned 189 people, less than 2%. When President Obama was in office... He received a staggering number of requests. 36,544 people asked him for a pardon. And he extended 212 pardons. That's .005%. You say, John, that's all interesting, but I hope I never break a federal law and have to get pardoned. Why are you telling us this today? I'm telling you this today to make this point. If somebody does commit a federal crime and they request a pardon they might get it but the odds are they won't I mean the the, the odds are very small that you would actually receive a presidential pardon But friend, listen to this, the good news today of Easter is that all of us who have sinned and fallen short of God's standard for our lives, when we request a pardon from the King of heaven, he extends a pardon 100% of the time. 100% of the time. See, God gets the last word on sinners who request mercy, forgiveness, pardon. Why? Because Jesus said, the person who comes to me, I will never cast out. In another place, Paul said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, when it comes to your request and my request for a pardon, God's word to us is always yes, I will forgive you, I will forgive you freely. You say, well, John, why don't the presidents, why don't they just extend a pardon 100% of the time? I can't speak for the presidents, but I think the answer to that is fairly obvious. I think in the presidents' minds, they're thinking, if I just give everybody a pardon, Where is the justice in that? I mean, if they have committed a crime, how am I going to just say it doesn't matter, you're pardoned? And so I think the presidents have a sense of justice Strong enough to say, we can't give everybody a pardon. You say, well, if that's true, does God not have a sense of justice? How's God giving everybody a pardon if they ask for a pardon? Friend, God has the ultimate sense of justice. And the reason that God can extend a pardon to us 100% of the time is because in the death of Jesus Christ, God's demand for justice was met. Your sin, my sin, they have been paid for in Jesus Christ. And so when God looks at the whole thing and we come to him asking for pardon, not because we promised to do better, not because, you know, we didn't mean to do bad. No, when we come in, we're honest and we say, God, I have sinned. I have fallen short of your glory. I have messed up. God, please forgive me because of what Jesus has done. God is able to look at the death of Jesus and apply the payment that he made to our account. And so God can say, my demand for justice is fulfilled. My love for you is extended in Christ, and you will be forgiven of your sin. And that's good news, to think that everything that you've ever done wrong in your life, or me and mine, when we ask God to forgive us, it is wiped away, and it is gone. I had a, I'll give you a recent story. Dad told me, he told the church earlier in the service, that several people came forward making decisions for the Lord on our Maundy Thursday service. In fact, there were four people who came Thursday night making decisions for the Lord. After the service, one of our seventh grade girls came up to me. She said, John, do you have just a minute I want to tell you a quick story? I said, yeah. She said, well, I've, I've got this friend that I've been inviting to spend the night with me, not every Saturday night, but a lot of Saturday nights. And he, she said, she's been coming to spend the night, but she never comes to church with me. And she says, so on Sunday morning when I'm getting dressed and my family's getting ready to go to church, she's getting dressed and getting ready to go home, and her mom come and, comes and picks her up and takes her home before we go to church. And she said, I've, I've invited her to church, but I've never been overly pushy or anything like that. I've just never tried to do that. You know, sometimes you can do bad trying to do good if you're too pushy. She said, John, it was funny. She said, last Saturday night, she spent the night at my house. And she said to me, she said, Abby, tomorrow morning, would it be okay if I go to church with you and your family? And Abby said, it'd be great. We'd love to have you go to church. She said, well, you know, I, I brought some clothes uh, that I can wear to go to church on tomorrow. And she said, I just, I just want to go. She said, I know you like the church, and, and you speak well of it. And, and she said, I just want to go and see what it's all about. And so last Sunday morning, for the first time, that seventh-grade girl came to First Baptist. She went to the youth part of the thing at 9.30, and then she came to the 11 o'clock worship service. And then they went, had lunch, and then the girl went back to, to Abby's house, and they were just kind of spending the afternoon together, and they were talking. And, and this, this girl said to Abby, she said, you know, Abby, I never had an experience like that today at church where they were talking about God and how much God loves us and how we can be forgiven and how we can know we're going to go to heaven when we die. And she said, Abby, I'll be honest with you. I think what I need to do is to, get, to become a Christian. I think I need to get saved. Well, it kind of startled Abby. And so Abby said... This is serious. We better go to my room and talk in private so we won't be disturbed. And so they went to her room, and they were talking more. And Abby was so sincere, and she didn't want to tell the girl anything wrong. And she said, Would you mind if I go get my mom just so i make sure that we can give a clear explanation about how to be saved? And she said, Yeah. And so she went and got her mom. Long story short, the mother came in there and explained to this girl how you can become a Christian by asking Jesus to come into your heart and forgive you. Last Sunday afternoon, after having come to First Baptist only one time, that seventh grade girl prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into her heart and make her a Christian. She asked for mercy, and she asked for forgiveness, and she asked for salvation. Now, let me ask you a question. In response to that prayer, what do you think God said? You think God said, no, you don't know very much. You've only been to church one time. You think God said, hey, what you need to do is you need to read the Bible more and study and make sure you really understand. No, I'll tell you what God said. God said when he heard that request for pardon, mercy and forgiveness and salvation, God said, yes, it is granted. Your sins are gone and you are saved.
0: Have you ever done what Abby's friend did? Have you ever called on the name of the Lord to be saved? It's a very simple thing to do, and it all starts with a prayer. You can pray with me right now by saying, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I have done wrong, and I am sorry. Please forgive me. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins, and I ask you to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Thank you that you'll never leave me. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be. I pray in your name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, you were saved, and you are now a Christian and we would love to hear about your decision to follow Christ. You can let us know by going to the Contact Us tab on the website, www.peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for listening today, and we look forward to you joining us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.